Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. We're back to relive more tennis, folks. It is the third instalment of Roland Garros relived after Yannick Noah's story a couple of days ago and John McEnroe's heartbreak, the haunting of John McEnroe uh, by Ivan Lendl yesterday. We have the rivalry, the rivalry of all rivalries, I think, between Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova to discuss today. From 1985, we're going to be concentrating on one of their three successive French Open final meetings. We've just watched it all together i don't know after every one of those i feel like i need to have a, kind of a little bit of a lie down and think about it before we start talking because catherine it's just there's so much to take in isn't there it's it's an emotional experience it's 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 a wonderful tennis match in its own right and it has such significance you've spoken to chris Everett for this show you're going to be hearing from chrissy here in an exclusive interview on the tennis podcast but I don't know, just watching it on its own was enough, let alone hearing from her. That's that's an added extra. Yeah, it's um it's making me want more and making me angry that that more high quality um footage and archive footage of their their many, many finals isn't available and we we've just struggled through a a varying quality uh bit of coverage of their 1985 French Open final, but it deserved so much more, didn't it? There, there should be an, a, a, an official high-quality archive of this stuff somewhere. And if there were, I would be spending the rest of the day on it, deep diving. <laughs> it's quite insulting, really, that there isn't. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a real shame. It's a blind spot for the sport, mm. and it's one that needs to be corrected, I think, because it's when we were researching some of the other tournaments, particularly those on on the ATP sort of 1000 level, and where you can go into the Tennis TV app, and the entire archive is there of, of very, very high-quality finals from the 80s and from the 90s, and it's just... Yeah, it's, 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 it's a treasure trove for, for the sport, and we are privileged to be able to relive it at all here with you on the tennis podcast but it was a, a scramble finding proper footage of this incredible match between these two yeah i mean this is by by most people's accounts you know reading write-ups of it at the time reading retrospectives from from the last 10 or so years hearing chris Everett herself talk about it this was the best match of the best rivalry in the sport and yeah, it should be being thrust in everyone's faces in as high quality um, as it can possibly be made available. But I mean, it was still a joy. It was still a joy to watch, but yeah, it, it's just a shame. It, well, it was. Um, but let's get a sense of that rivalry. Let's get a sense of the time as well, because... 1985, the Live Aid concerts had raised over 50 million for famine relief in Ethiopia. Mikhail Gorbachev became leader of the Soviet Union, and Back to the Future was released. Big year. You seen Back to seen Back to the Future, Catherine? I have not in the year that it was released, but yes. 
I did. I, I sneaked in to the cinema. First ever cinema trip on my own without my parents. It's great. You went li- literally alone? No, I went with my mates. Oh, okay. oh. Sneaked out of school and everything. That was the, that was the road to my ruin <laughs> in school years. Did Bruce Springsteen play Live Aid? Uh, yes, I think he did. And I think he was, he was also part of the We Are The World song that was part of, uh, of all that, wasn't he? Yes, right. he was, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't think he was very good in that, to be honest. I, I, I wasn't really into Bruce at that age. I've got to be honest with you, Matt. Look, look at the look at his... I have nev- I've never seen that look on Matt's face before. I'm, I'm considering just shutting down my recording right here, ending it here. <laughs> what? I was there for Stevie Wonder. I really liked Stevie Wonder oh. in that. And um, and then when Bruce came, and I was mm, not so sure, but he's grown on me. As uh, he da- David's eighties music tastes were shocking, Matt. Consider this a compliment. Stevie Wonder was a legend. What are you talking about? Anyway, I know so I Bruce. got there, Matt. I got there. You've got to give me some 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 latitude yeah, okay. to develop yeah. and change. You've heard what I was like in the eighties <laughs> and nineties. What sort of twelve-year-old boy is into Stevie Wonder? <laughs> this one. All right. <laughs> I had a bit about me. I wasn't going to just follow the crowd. Anyway, we're, we're, dying, we're, we're moving off at a tangent here. Uh, I should also say that Prince Harry, Cristiano Ronaldo and Bruno Mars were born in that particular year, in 1985. And Boris Becker, of course, would become the Wimbledon champion aged 17. This rivalry, though, between Evert Lloyd, as she was then known, and Martina Navratilova, 80 matches played against one another. They played against each other for the first time in 1973. The head-to-head finished at 43-37 to Navratilova, and they won 18 Grand Slam singles titles each. Incredible to think that they played all those years and finished on exactly the same number as we're now talking about, maybe Federer, Nadal, Djokovic all finishing on the same number as well. Let's, before we go any further, let's get a sense of what the rivalry was like from one of the two players concerned. Because as I mentioned earlier, Catherine's been speaking to Chrissy Everts in the last couple of weeks and she asked her about the rivalry and the dynamic between them generally. We started our rivalry um, when she was 16 and I was 18. And, um, we've, we had a 18 year rivalry and we had our ups and downs, um, not only in matches, but in, in our relationships and our friendships. There are times when she didn't like me and there are times when I didn't like her and I didn't talk to her. She didn't talk to me. There are times, um, when we were going to dinner and, and practicing together. So, I mean, there are a lot of ups and downs, but at the end of the day, I think the last few years of our career, we realized that we are both human beings and we realized it wasn't all about the competition and the rivalry because Martina and I so many times, 80 times would end up, ended up in the locker room on a Sunday alone, just she and I in the locker room. And, we would sense each other's nerves before the match. And after the match, one of us would always be comforting the other one. One of us won, one of us lost. So many times in tears, Martina would come over and put her arm around me. Many times I would go over and put my arm around her. And I think we just realized that um, we just, we were going to be bound together for the rest of our lives. And, Subsequently, we're very close friends now, and it's really interesting. There's no pressure whatsoever. You know, there's no pressure because we don't have to compete against each other. I don't want to give her the edge. She doesn't want to give me the edge. You know, that's what it was. If, if we got too close to each other emotionally and too close as friends, the edge would go. So we stayed apart. But now, um, now it's different. We just look at each other and laugh. And she's with Tennis Channel, and I'm with ESPN, two competitors. And she, I mean, we're still competing. <laughs> we're still competing. But the beautiful thing is, you know, she lives 30 minutes from me now. She's in South Florida. What are you doing, Martina? Are you following me around the map or what? Um, and we can giggle and have a glass of wine and um, tease each other and. And because we're old, I mean, we're over 60 for heaven's sake. So it's at some point in your life, you just got to 
let down the just let down the the mask and be yourself with one another before martina came along when you were completely dominating the tour people used to talk about a talent gap that you were just so much better than everybody else on tour and of course as people like to do they used it as a a stick to beat women's tennis with did you feel like you were waiting for a rival to come along yeah, actually, I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I think that one thing I will say, when I came along, none of the women had ground strokes, except for Nancy Ritchie. Billie Jean, Margaret Court, Rosie Casals, Virginia Wade, they all serve in volleyed. Three of the four Grand Slams were on grass. So they all serve in volleyed. And that's, they serve in volleyed on clay, and they serve in volleyed on hard. And, and so when I came along, I had ground strokes and I would keep them nailed to the baseline and that's how I won because I just wear them down. Um, so I don't think it wasn't that I had competition because on grass, you know, I mean, I, I still struggled against Billie Jean and Yvonne and, and, you know, the Margaret court on grass courts, but I think on, on a clay or a hard court, um, you know, it was different. So I think, what I, if I did anything, I added the thought, maybe they were starting to think in their minds, oh boy, we better get some ground strokes here and get an all-court game, you know, get an all-around game. And, and that's, that's really what happened. But it, it wasn't easy. I mean, I had, before Martina, I still had Yvonne. Billie Jean was still playing well. Margaret Court was still playing well. Um, it, it wasn't that easy. I, I don't think it, I ever felt like it was easy. There was always somebody there that was challenging me. But with Martina and I, there was such a contrast with us. You know, she's, she's comes from a communist country. I come from the land of freedom. She's emotional. I'm cool. You know, she's big and strong and I'm looking weak out there. Um, you know, and I was a baseliner and she was a survivor. So I think the contrast really helped liven up the rivalry and it forced her fans and my fans to come to the table, you know, together and that's why we had, you know, such a wonderful rivalry. One of the reasons. Yeah, there's so much to the Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert rivalry, isn't there? That's that's what gets me. Just from watching a single match here, you see them on court together, and we watched the match entirely together. And and even from the very first moment that they come out of the entrance to the court, Catherine. You, you and I both remarked on exactly the same thing, the way they walked out together. It's, it's just not something like you see these days, is it? Or, or, or I can't really think of anywhere, anybody who's walked out like they did. It, t- tell us what it was like. Not just together, in step together, emerging from the, the tunnel on the centre court at Roland Garros, which at the time wasn't yet called the Philippe Chatrier court. Um, but, but chit-chatting. Like they were, like they were just out for a, a lockdown stroll, but not even two meters apart. They were, you know, practically touching, um, in locked in sort of casual chit chat. Looking, I mean, ever in particularly, in particular, looked strikingly relaxed. I thought, and yet you just knew that that wasn't going to detract at all from the heat of battle. You know, we talk about. We've debated whether, you know, a a love-in type rivalry as we've had with, with Federer and Nadal and, and Borg and McEnroe is is better than a, an aggro rivalry like between McEnroe and Lendl and McEnroe and Connors. And, and one of the things uh, Mary was talking about during, during our chat last week was that McEnroe describes Borg as his greatest rival and she always corrects him and says, he's not your greatest rival, he's your favourite rival. And there's a difference. Well, Martina and Chrissy seem to be able to have a, a love-in and a standoff <laughs> all at once, yeah. which is just incredible. I, I, I wish I could have experienced it firsthand. I really do. Because sometimes I think the, 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 the really cosy relationships between players can get in the way and they can sometimes impact how you view it as a, as a spectator. Whereas once they had finished the pleasantries at the start of the match, I feel like virtually everybody watching picks a side. I'm Chrissy. I'm Martina. 
and they stay like that all the way through. Maybe they maybe they switch. Maybe something makes them switch halfway through. But you don't stay impartial. You you care about who wins. And then right at the end of the match, and they've just duked it out for three hours. The the warmth between them at the net, and it wasn't saccharine sweet. It was just genuine warmth between the two of them. And it was lovely. It was lovely to witness. And, and you felt like you'd not only witnessed a fantastic sporting occasion, you'd you'd witnessed the best of humanity in, in a sporting arena. And it was it was just just lovely. It was such a different feel to the end of the McEnroe-Lendl match well, that we watched yesterday. Then Lendl gave one word and McEnroe walked off and McEnroe could barely even look at Lendl. And then here we are. Navratilova and Chris Evert kind of sharing sharing the same stage, sharing the same same spotlight, and joking with each other. And Navratilova speaking in French with the um, speaking in French to the crowd. But I just think that they probably just kept enough distance as well to to really not be a complete love in. As you said, there were, as Chris Evert said as well, there were moments of ups and downs. I think they started playing doubles together quite a lot, but then Chris Evert has admitted that when she began to feel a bit threatened by Navratilova on the singles court, she dissolved that doubles partnership and they then were just singles rivals. And I think when Navratilova started working with, um, is it Nancy Lieberman, Lieberman, she kind of told Navratilova, you can't really be friends with Chris Ever. And I think there was a couple of years of distance there as well. And yet they both... You know, those were the only two who understood each other because those were the only two in the locker room, I don't know, 80 times in their career. But they were on different emotional planes because they were rivals. If one was up, the other was inevitably down. Yet they understood exactly how the other was feeling and could comfort each other and support each other. So it was just, it was just perfect. It had it had both. It had the on-court rivalry and you didn't really think about their friendship while they're playing. But then once it's finished, it's... It's nice and sort of life becomes bigger than tennis, I suppose. And this rivalry is the one that makes me feel quite emotional, really, which maybe I've got no right to because I don't have those sort of first hand feelings of having lived through it. But ordinarily, I would prefer the aggro rivalry. I prefer McEnroe Lendl to, to McEnroe Borg. I loved what we watched yesterday. That that photo of, of McEnroe and Lendl, which is on all of our social media, I can't stop looking at it. It just captures so much about that moment, about sport, about about the 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 tense dynamic between those two and usually I would go for that any day over the love in but I think in fact I know it's because they're they're women Martina and Chrissy and women are pitted against one another women the the world wants women to be rivals the world wants women to be in competition with one another and they they want women to hate on one another a lot of the time and they were so pitted against one another in the media they were presented as as total opposites you know i, I read in a, a a guardian piece um by Jeanette Howard in 2005 about how Martina was other you know, she was she was not the the feminine ideal, and Chris Evert made made people feel comfortable because she made people feel like, oh, a great female athlete can be feminine. Um, yeah, and as you'll hear in the the full Chris Evert interview, which we'll we'll be running during Chris Evert Week in a couple of times, and it was just so fascinating and and insightful. It was all a lie. Those are those are. Chrissy's words herself that that presentation of her in the media was was all a lie but it it's it's a reflection of what the media wanted them to be what the world wanted them to be and they didn't buy into that they developed their own extremely unique way of being rivals and I love that it really makes me feel quite emotional 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. This uh, match that we've selected to cover for this particular edition of Roland Garros Relived perfectly encapsulates their rivalry from start to finish it i feel maybe you could say perhaps with the winner being martina would be another way to capture it given she won slightly more of their matches it that didn't really matter though this was about them bringing to the table what they had and when when we were coming to select this i think you two decided Let's go for 85 French Open. I was looking at the fact that they faced each other in 84, 85, 86. It was Mary who had initially come up with the idea of cover the the series that they had against each other, the run of finals, Mary Carrillo uh, uh, against one another at, at the French Open. And, and I hadn't really been that aware of this 85 match, but having just watched it, it was, it was perfect. And the backstory I, I also find really interesting because – a year before Martina had had won in in the final that they'd played, she came into this final as the world number one. She'd won two hundred and ninety six matches and lost just eight since nineteen eighty two That was a stat that NBC put up and between the two of them she hadn't lost any matches david as the um the NBC comment commentary pointed out many times since um becoming a glasses wearer. In March earlier that year. In March so earlier that year. A full three months unbeaten with glasses. <laughs> it was it was, according to the, the commentary at the time, a really important stat. You two are both wearing glasses and you two both have an unbeaten record against me who is not wearing glasses. I might be being stereotypical about glasses wearers, but I feel like I can I can afford to be because I am a glasses wearer. Do you reckon the person who came up with the stat was a glasses wearer? And I very much do. Really, really wanted to make a point of it. <laughs> uh, also, I mean, the rivalry-wise, we talk about how close their rivalry was. But going into this match, Martina had won 21 out of their 25 most recent meetings. So she is dominating Chris Evert. And it's quite interesting. Evert had, had won a very recent one in Miami earlier that year. And she said in an interview before the match, I think I've broken the psychological barrier, which, which was an interesting play of her own. And, and she'd also had a fascinating run to the final, playing both a 15-year-old Steffi Graf and a 15-year-old Gabriella Sabatini and beating them both along the way. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, given 
the importance that they would play in these two players' lives in the future. They would effectively retire Chris Everts between them. Um, and I, and even when you look at it just as as a sort of Grand Slam total thing, we were talking about this yesterday with, with Lendl coming in with zero Grand Slams and ending up with eight, McEnroe coming in with five and ending up on fewer, on seven. And here we had Everett who got 16, Navratilova had got 11. And it was just this little this little race, and we're seeing this in present day, this vying for historical supremacy. And, I mean, it's it's the most perfect ending that they end up 18 apiece. But this match, on its own, it had everything, because Chris Everett just re- slightly reinvented herself, it seemed, for it. And she took the fight to Navratilova and and it's something that I'd never seen because I've only ever watched their matches on grass courts at Wimbledon where her baseline game her reactive game was was not able to cope with 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 Martina it's great watch and I think it's a real testament to Chris Everett that she did reinvent herself in this period you know I think we've heard the stats there Martina was dominating their rivalry and Chris Everett realized she had to do something a little bit different it wasn't like she completely transformed her game but in this in this match against Martina she manages to pin Martina to the baseline and not allow Navratilova to get forward as much as she wanted to and I think basically um, Martina's coach at the time had said if if Martina's allowed to get forward she's going to win like you you have to stop her doing that. And Chris Everett was the only one who had a chance to to do that with with the capabilities she had in her game, the fact that she'd added a bit a little bit more pace to her ground strokes, I think. But I just think it's impressive that that she did it. You know, we we were watching McEnroe yesterday and Bud Collins kept stressing that McEnroe had basically taken Borg out of the game with the return of serve to Borg's forehand coming in and knocking off the volley. And Borg you know, obviously a great champion himself, but he didn't kind of reinvent his game to deal with what McEnroe was throwing at him. But Chris Everett really did. And after this match, her rivalry with Navratilova was more even again. Um, it kind of moved into that fourth phase where I think, obviously they played their Roland Garros final the next year, which, which Everett won. And, and, and they, yeah, it was a close rivalry again. And this match was kind of the turning point. And it was, it was the moment of Chris Everett realising that she has to do something a little bit different and being willing to do it. And possibly a slight assist to the Parisian weather that day mm. because it was very, very windy. In fact, there's um, a story that Pam Shriver, who uh, Martina went on to win the women's doubles title with uh, the next day on the Sunday, um, Pam Shriver woke up on the Saturday. Of course, she was, you know, planning to watch her partner's uh, match against Chris Everett, and she says she she looked out of the window, saw that I think it had stormed that morning. It had there'd been a big storm. It had rained, and saw that it was was breezy. And she says to herself, "Chris has a chance today," and that, in spite of the fact that that she'd won just one of their previous sixteen matches, you know, she was the she was such the heavy favourite before that match, Navratilova. But as you mentioned, David, he, she'd got that one win in in Miami earlier in the year. And in that NBC coverage that we watched, there was um, a pre, pre-match, I guess it was done the day before, after her semi-final win over Sabatini, interview with Chris Evert. And she says in that match, quite sort of wistfully, she says... Well, I mean, the rivalry's been so one-sided the last couple of years. I, I just have nothing to lose. She said, I can tell you I'm feeling confident, but I said that before last year's final and I got killed. And it, it seemed to me it was the perfect balance of feeling like you've got nothing to lose, but also having that sliver of belief that the that win in, in Miami did because she was... She was noticeably extremely loose, I thought, in those opening games. Now, obviously, that that surged and ebbed uh, throughout the course of the match. But in those opening games, I thought it was really clear that she was loose and and pressure free. Now, obviously, that that changed as she she went ahead and and gained a a lead in the match. And actually, how each of them played when they when they were in charge was 
was one of the most interesting facets of of the match. Yeah, because she started won the first set, Chris Everett, and and Navratilova. It was really noticeable how stressed she was on that day how nervous she seemed to be her game wasn't there this was not like McEnroe who we watched yesterday who faltered but was playing brilliantly Navratilova was was really struggling to to find her game and I I was so unused to seeing this how somebody who'd grown up only watching tennis at Wimbledon all I'd ever known was Martina Navratilova winning I'd never known anything else she'd won nine titles I, I I saw probably half a dozen of those and a lot, a, a good few of them would have been against Chris Everett, and she would have won relatively straightforwardly on grass. But um, in this match, she was she was anxious. It seemed she didn't really know how to deal with the the depth, the consistency of Everett on the day, and sometimes the the switch in in approach of attack, and and as you say, the conditions themselves, because it was it was so blustery. Um, it also struck me that when there was something I wanted to mention yesterday about when there was a close line call that Navratilova got antsy about, and she was pleading with the umpire to come down and check, or, to, or pleading with the line judge to come and check the mark, because that's how they did things back then. They they would they would appeal to the chair umpire to let the line judge come and look at a mark in the clay and decide whether it was in or out, but it was up to the umpire whether they were going to come or not at all. And and it's so jarring compared to the present day where all you have to do is sort of point your finger at a, at a mark and or circle it and down comes the chair umpire immediately. That was just not happening during the McEnroe against Lendl match and it wasn't happening against uh, between Navratilova and, and Evert. And it was... I, d- I don't think I have ever seen that before i'd i would i wouldn't have watched clay court tennis closely enough in the 80s to to have been aware that this used to happen it was quite something to witness well they were point blank refusing to look at the marks you know all, all the players were asking them to and they just they were just refusing i have actually always found the umpire going down to check the mark a little bit strange because they're obviously following the ball whereas the actual line judges are following the specific line and watching the specific mark. It makes sense to me that it would be the line judge that would go and have a look at it. Um, I'm not sure when that transitioned into being the umpire. And practical sense, because they don't have a ladder to climb Mm. up and down to do it. Yeah, I I completely (laughs) agree with you. But I mean, I, I, I mean, she, she showed frustration in those moments, um, Novatilova, as did McEnroe and Lendl as well yesterday. But I'm surprised they did. I mean, in that position, I would lose it. The refusal to take into account evidence that is literally in front of you that could improve the integrity and the fairness of the game. I, I, I could not cope with that. I actually think they contained themselves pretty well. I guess that was just the way things were and they were used to it, but just completely maddening. I believe the policy was was premised on the belief at the time that that you couldn't trust which marks they were. They didn't they didn't trust the integrity of the marks, but obviously that's something that's so been discredited. So do you prefer the policy now? Yeah, broadly. I, I agree with Matt that uh, a, a welcome adjustment would be that the line judge goes and inspects the mark rather than sometimes I do find it quite stressful watching a reluctant umpire descend and ascend the the steps of his or her chair repeatedly. Mm. So Everett won the first set, Navratilova then won the second set on a tie break, absolutely thrilling second set. Yeah, because Everett had served for the match in the second set at 6-5 and Navratilova broke back, got it to a tie break. And this was, I think, a very similar scenario had happened in the US Open final the year before. Everett had led a set and a break and not been able to finish it off and Navratilova had come back and gone on to win. So really, I, I imagine that Everett was having flashbacks to that in that in this match. There's a line from a um, a retrospective on the match in uh, Sports Illustrated saying, never in such an outstanding match have both parties played so fearlessly while behind and so fitfully while ahead, mm. which oh. sums it up nicely. And that was Navratilova's yeah. analysis 
at the end of the match. Incredible insight into how sharp her tennis mind is to be able to pick that out. Having just played the match, she said, well, neither of us were aggressive enough when we when we were ahead. We didn't sort of hit the accelerator. We, we both played well behind, but we didn't take our chances and kind of, I don't know, apply the sleeper hold or something if when we were ahead. Um, they, they let each other back into the match. And while it perhaps wasn't their highest quality ever match, it was certainly one of their most suspenseful and dramatic because of that. I don't know whether I'm off here, but my sense is that Navratilova is the perfectionist who really struggles to come to terms with the fact that she didn't play as well as she could. Whereas Everett is more accepting of conditions and circumstances and adapts to them and may end up still getting a result, even if things aren't going as well as, as, as they could. And, and I loved the way she went about it in that match. You see a, a contentedness from her within rallies to keep them going and just wait for her opportunity and keep Navratilova pinned behind the baseline as much as she can, challenge her almost to come in to the net. But she withstood. When I'm watching her lose that second set, I'm waiting for the tables to turn. I'm waiting for Navratilova to take over. The player who's won 21 out of the last 25, the world number one, the player I'd always known as the player who comes out on top in these matches. And, and I think it's a huge testament to Everett that she, that she held on and managed to to win this match and the way she did it at the end as well. I mean, there was a moment when she broke for five, three, wasn't there, that we all remarked upon because we saw something I don't think any of us had ever seen before, which is a forehand cross court passing shot winner from Everett and a, and a really, uh, palpable celebration, a really demonstrative punch of the air from Chris Everett. That did not tend to happen. No, she was extremely undemonstrative. I mean, she 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 talked in our interview, and she's talked quite a lot over the years about how her father, who was her her coach in her formative years and for much of her career, told her, you know, drilled it into her to to not express any emotion on the court because it's a it's a sign of weakness. Now, Martina was completely completely the opposite in that respect, and and that's something I love about the the dynamic between the two of them as well, because physically they were, they, they, that, that wasn't what they conformed to physically. Everyone assumed, everyone assumed Martina was the tough one because she looked tough. She looked tough in all the traditional, in all the traditional masculine ways, in all the masculine ways that we, that we attribute toughness to. And, Chris Everett looked frail and feminine, um, and I, 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 I don't agree with those words. But you know, frailty was associated is associated with femininity, and she conformed to the ideal of femininity. And she, it, it, Chris, this is something that Chrissy's talked about. She said people would come up to her and say, you know, I don't, I don't like Martina. She's she's too tough, and she would reply, What are you talking about? I'm the hard one. I'm I'm the hard one between she's a kitten. What a great line. She's a kitten, she said. I'm the hard one. People That's just didn't people just didn't didn't get it because because, you know, we're so wedded to our our stereotypes. Yeah. Even what, if even um, if we don't realise it. And appearances and making judgments and conclusions based upon them. What was really interesting was she's had this big moment, she celebrated going five three up. She then immediately gets broken back. It goes to five games all in the third set. Everett is at love 40. That was an incredible moment, wasn't it? Because she didn't have a big serve. She's playing against a player who's all over her if she leaves anything short. And she's at five all, third set, love 40. And she holds on and, and wins the game. Ends up finishing it with the most sublime backhand winner down the line and it was just just majestic um and and you could tell that that Everts that was one of the moments of her career I think really I mean she'd won so many Grand Slam titles she'd already won 16 so this was her 17th she would only win one more uh the following year at the French Open against the same player but but 
but what a moment for her. Let's um, let's hear from her now, um, Chris Evert, talking about that 1985 final. Catherine actually told her that we were going to relive it together here on the Tennis Podcast, and Chrissy joked, um, are you going to have to quicken it up? Uh, which, which, when I heard that, I remember thinking, oh, I wonder whether I will think that when we watch it. And yet the eyes adjusted for me at least, very quickly, we were watching maybe for 10 minutes and suddenly I'm just completely absorbed by this match. I'm not thinking about the pace of the shots or the fact that they're not smashing winners left, right and centre with single knockout blows. It was just a joy to watch them playing these games from the baseline and working each other out and giving themselves opportunities. Catherine asked Chrissy about whether winning, given everything that had gone before between them, was a surprise even to her. Yeah, I mean, I can say on the same same in the same breath, maybe that was one that she could have won or should have won, you know, because she had me on the ropes many times in that match. But at some point, I had lost to Martina 13 times in a row in over two and a half years, and I had beaten her earlier that year in Miami. And that was my 14th match after I was over 13, that was my 14th match in a row where, and, and I, and I started with a different strategy. I started coming into the net a little bit more. I started taking a few more risks and I won that match. And I think that gave me confidence, but I still felt that she was still the number one player in the world and that she still was better than me. But that French open, you know, I just, I never gave up. And I, I remember there were points where I was really, it was down like 40 love one game and I brought it back to deuce and, it was a seesaw match. I think it was full of nerves, and we really didn't play. Each of us didn't play our best tennis, but it was certainly suspenseful, and the crowd got their monies out of it, that's for sure. But that, I think that, of all my 18 Grand Slams, I think that was the happiest I've ever felt, You know, beating her when everybody, like you said, had counted me out in three, a tough three-set match on clay. And it made me want to play for years after that. And I played for like three or four years after that. Well, what a revelation that was, Catherine. We saw her interviewed as well on the court right after winning this match where she's she's presented with the fact that she had considered retiring and there were rumours that she was going to quit and she'd openly talked about it. And, and here she is telling us, that that match alone was the one that extended her career. And for quite a few years, it's, it's, it's a moment in time, this match. Yeah, I think she played for another four years after that. I think her, her last Wimbledon was, was 1989, wasn't it? So yeah, she ended up playing for another four years. And I know her, her motivation kind of waned in, in the last couple of, of those years. Um, that's something, again, she talks about in the interview. But to think that she was... She was very consider- very much considering retiring and, as you say, talking about it openly. You know, all the talk at that French Open, as I understand it, was whether it would be her last, whether that could possibly be her last ever French Open match. And kind of when we, when we saw that um, interview on the court, and they happened so quickly, honestly, match point ends. They're, they're, they're still shaking hands with the umpire and they're at about... 700 people on the court in a frenzy all of a sudden it's like a pitch invasion it really is it's it's and 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 then four seconds after that there is a microphone under under Chris Everett's nose and a camera um and And then they have the funny presentation up in the stand yeah which I I love bring that back um and the (laughs) the the first, first couple of questions are obviously about the victory and then I think the third question is so are you going to retire it's like she's just won the thing probably not and she doesn't say no she says oh you know i can't really think about that right now Um, not not right now it's extraordinary (laughs) really extraordinary Uh, meanwhile matt you've got martina who was trying i mean she was very magnanimous in in defeat and very sporting with chrissy and yet at the same time you could see her in the presentation speech looking like she just wants to tear her own hair out in frustration at her inability to play and perform and produce what she's capable of on that on that stage yeah i think what you said about her being a perfectionist must have been so difficult for her with a 
an aggressive style of tennis because you are going to make errors playing that way and that is going to be frustrating so to be able to overcome all of that and still win as much as she did and play as well as she did so often is a testament to her ability um and she she really seemed to get such a nice reception from the crowd that's maybe something i hadn't always appreciated was how popular she was i don't know whether i'm misspeaking there and maybe Everett was always the more popular one but navratilova spoke in french at the end of that speech and the commentator said that it was the first time a um a foreign winner of or runner-up at the french open had given their speech in french um and that really seemed to endear her to the crowd and i like the fact that she got that appreciation because i perhaps perhaps mistakenly thought that maybe she didn't in her prime. And when, um, you know, that, that Fed Cup match that we rewatched a few months ago, when she really did receive the warmth of the public back in, back in Czechoslovakia, I kind of thought that maybe that was one of the first times she'd ever really felt that warmth. And I think it was to that degree, but it was nice to know that the crowd appreciated that she was as much a part of this match as well as, um, as Chris Everett, the winner. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Really loved every minute of it. And, and including the scratchy coverage that we had to cobble together from a few different sources, the, 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 the actual YouTube clips that we watched would shift between the NBC coverage with Dick Enberg and Bud Collins and over to the, the BBC coverage that I, I was trying to think how much French Open I would have seen in the 80s. And I think what used to happen was there was the BBC show Grandstand, which would show sports from 12 in the afternoon all the way through till 6 in the evening and all different sports. And they would sort of put in the French Open when it was on and then they would break to go and watch some watch a horse race and then come back and you would see the person who's cut together this this footage was was moving from <laughs> from op- option to option trying to to keep the match going so we we actually heard some of the commentary from Dan Maskell and Virginia Wade on the BBC and Dan Maskell saying oh that's a peach of a backhand <laughs> uh, and and things like that which uh, was rather different to what we were hearing uh, on the American the um, the best commentary of all came from uh, Chris Evert in her or one of her post-match interviews where she was asked about her run to the final. She was actually being asked about her semi-final against 15-year-old Gabriella Sabatini, which was a real tussle. Um, and I think she was asked, you know, is that where is that where you really hit form? You know, is that where you built your confidence this tournament? And she replied, I think it actually all started against the young German girl in the round of 16. She's got a lot of potential. <laughs> and that was, that was 15-year-old Steffi Graf. Yeah, it's it was great. It really, just a wonderful experience um, for us to witness, and it, and it whets the appetite now because we've got the whole of the rest of the Chris Everts interview to bring to you the week after we finish our Roland Garros relived shows, and and loads more to dive into about her career. Can I end our reliving of this match with one last line from the Sports Illustrated piece? Please, sure. <laughs> Before we revisit the aggro between Matt and David, I haven't forgotten that. Um, No, have I. uh, (laughs) um, It says, for the first time since the Musketeers took the mantle of French tennis from Suzanne Longlen almost 60 years ago, the place belongs to the ladies. Oh, that is great. And it was, it it was, it was the, the men's final the following day was, was Volander beating Lendl. And, you know, that was, that was a great rivalry, Volander and Lendl, but it really was about the, um, the ladies or the women as they ought to be called. Um, I do think this is the greatest rivalry that mm -hmm. tennis has ever known. I do too. Yeah. There's, um, there's a line from Frank DeFord, is it? We had that name before um, in Sports Illustrated. He's written, one of the seminal pieces on Navratilova and Everett, um, calling them a pair beyond compare. And um, and he says, Chris, the more consistent cast the longer shadow, while Martina, the more sensational, shines the brighter light. And together they form a complete whole. There's never been a rivalry like it in women's sports. In fact, you could leave out the qualifying gender there and you would still be correct. And I just think what I like about it as well is I think it's, 
I don't get the sense that people ever really argue about who's better, Chris Ever or Martina Navratilova. There's okay, it helped that they both finished on eighteen slams, but there's a recognition that they did something together, and you can appreciate them in different and similar ways. Um, and I think it's a bit of a lesson, really, for the for the current generation of fans. I mean, as much as we like debating who's better, but I think there's a there's a level of respect here, which sadly is. Uh, lacking today i think certainly on the internet and it, it <laughs> certainly feels as if Navratilova and Everett are also quite content mm. with the fact that they shared this incredible rivalry so. and that'll do that'll do them just fine uh, and actually i think post-career i mean there are exceptions to this but people i've spoken to one of one of them was stefan edberg we i spoke to in preparation for for our relived series you're going to be hearing a little bit from him in the in the days and weeks to come and and he, he him talking about his rivalry with boris becker they had three wimbledon finals in a row and you they always got along they all they shared something special and and it doesn't matter now who was the best. It, it, you can debate it, but they shared something. Really, really, they did. So in the rivalries, um, yeah. Halfway through this podcast, we uh, we started listening to Chris Everett's uh, first words, and um, we we went into that. I don't quite know how we got onto it, but we were talking about Bruce Springsteen in "We Are the World" uh, in the USA for Africa uh, song uh, to raise money for the. Ethiopian famine and um, yeah I, I seem to, to suggest that maybe he wasn't at his best in that particular song and that Stevie Wonder outsung him what, I, what, I was, what was the we adjective you used David? Grating we got into it David because you slagged him off well I didn't I just you know it's just a 12 year old observation back from the day that you um, repeated confidently well, 30, 34 years on um, I, I think he was rather better than I thought um, and, and fortunately I already know that but I also would like to revise my 12 year old assessment but how good was Stevie Wonder oh wow that was a heck they, they sung a duet together we found and it was a nice duet it's not washing is it I, I think you've underestimated Matt here awesome. come on Matt we can, we can all have our own opinions yes no I don't think that applies but... to Bruce <laughs> Feel free Shall to I keep, keep them to yourself. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll quit while I'm ahead. Uh, not, we can all have them, but not all opinions are equal. Right. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, okay, right. Well, it's been a joy, mostly, here on the Tennis Podcast on day three of Tennis Relived. Hope you've enjoyed it as well. We'll be back again tomorrow with the 1989 French Open final between Michael Chang and Stefan Edberg. That is something to look forward to. Can't wait already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.